This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, everyone, time for another edition of Holding Court. We're going to do a little French Open action right now because uh, quarterfinals coming up. There's still one round of 16 match to play in the women's side, Jabor, against Danielle Collins. That got postponed today, so we're looking ahead to day 10. Um, we'll have that match. We'll kick things off on Court Philippe Chatry, and then you'll have uh, quarterfinals and the women's half of the draw, Svitolina Podoroska. Uh, and then Sviatek against Trevisan. What a surprise that is. The young Paul, the 19-year-old, against a veteran from Italy who came through the qualifying. I would be lying to you, and you know I don't do that on my podcast if I told you I knew a lot about her because I don't. But it's been a remarkable run. Sviatek, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. My Polish friends will let me know otherwise is the real deal. She's got serious game. I'm expecting her to win this. She just destroyed Halep which was um, shockingly easy for her. Of course, the heavy conditions didn't seem to help Simona that much being played at this time of year. Uh, a lot has been discussed about how the courts are playing a little bit slower, a little bit heavier. Even the players have talked about the balls being a little bit heavier. What does that mean when the ball's heavier, the courts are heavier? It means it doesn't bounce quite as much. It doesn't spring the ball off the court uh, as it does with lighter balls and in drier conditions. When the court's more slippery, uh, you can see the, uh, you know, more of the hard surface underneath the clay. That's what we consider a, a faster type of hard court. I mean, excuse me, clay court uh, where the ball really bounces a lot. That's traditionally where Nadal's been even more difficult to deal with and beat. So a lot of people asking about if the conditions for Nadal uh, are a little bit trickier this year. Yes, they are. But that being said, the guy's still lost just two matches in, what, 13 years or 14, 15 years at the French Open. So it doesn't matter how a clay court is playing. Rafael Nadal is still the player to beat. Many people, many of you on Twitter asking, as I posted uh, a little bit earlier, about uh, what topics you would like to hear discussed. And a lot of you, including uh, Sabu, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, wanting to ask, uh, wanting me to talk about Yannick Sinner. Well, I would love to talk about Sinner, this young Italian, because I've been watching him pretty closely for the last two years. In fact, this year during the U.S. Open, when I was strolling around the grounds, and yes, I mean strolling because uh, there were no crowds, of course, this year at the U.S. Open, so I was able to wander about uh, with no one walking around, no fans and so on, and see the players doing the same. And I came across Yannick Sinner practicing and uh, watched him for a little bit. I've always been impressed watching him in the last year or so. He won the next-gen ATP Finals. Uh, over a year ago. What strikes me about Sinner is uh, his ball striking ability off both wings. And I think Rafael Nadal actually had a, a really good comment about him as he looks ahead to playing him in the quarterfinals. And he said he has a very fast hand. So if you watch Sinner uh, hit the ball, even I was just watching him with some video of him practicing at Roland Garros, you see what Nadal is talking about. If you watch very closely, particularly on his forehand side, actually reminded me a little bit of the hand speed that Roger Federer gets on his forehand. And if you notice Sinner, uh, when you watch it in, in, in slow uh, motion or you just see him hitting, you can see that he really doesn't take the racket back that far. 
And that's become more and more common with the players as they're adjusted to the speed of the ball coming at them. Coming at them, so you'll see a lot more players um, not bring the racket way above their shoulder. Almost take it just right, very closely behind them, and then they get under the ball and whip it. And their wrist. And, and if you watch center, just like watch. I remember watching Federer at Wimbledon one year in the BBC had a super duper slow mo on his wrist. And his wrist breaks so much. I'm trying to break mine right now as I'm doing this podcast. And I can't because I just don't have the flexibility. But these guys and center included, obviously all tennis players have this amount of flexibility, whether it's in the wrist, the shoulders, and so on. But what determines you to be able to get that whip and what's, what Nadal calls a fast hand is the flexibility. And Sinner has that in his wrist, okay? And... You know, that much of that is just natural uh, ability and, and God-given genetics. Obviously, you then develop it over time. If you, those of you who don't know the story of Sinner, he was a, he was a sort of a, a high, very high-level skier growing up in the part of Italy, uh, in, the, in, the, in the hill, the mountainy part of Italy, northern part of Italy where he grew up, and he was an ec- excellent skier from, and up until he was about 12 years old, from like 8 to 12. So uh, you obviously learn as a skier out of necessity to become very agile, very flexible. Of course, Djokovic did a lot of skiing as well when he was young, grew up uh, where his parents had a pizza place on the mountain in Serbia. So skiing, if you started very young, you know, your, nim- your nimbleness and flexibility can, can come through. If you're going to be a great skier, likely you need to have those, those kind of skills. So uh, Sinner has that, and so that means he can create a lot of power with not that much effort, particularly on the forehand. Great two-handed backhand, hits it clean. He's got very good size. He's lean. Uh, his serve is okay so far. I think that's a part of his game that will need to improve. I don't expect he's going to be able to beat Nadal, of course. Uh, why would I? But I do think he's going to be able to test him with that ball-striking ability. What, what, what he'll have to do is step inside the court a lot more often than he's had to do so far. Uh, he played against Rarev, who was uh, you know, not feeling well, and that's another issue, by the way. Everyone wants to know my opinion on that. My opinion on that is that the tournament should have done a better job of monitoring him and if, if it turned, I don't know if he has, I mean, didn't he have COVID this summer? So he probably didn't have it again. Uh, so, it, but it sounds like the, the protocols over there, and I'm not there, I'm back in New York. The protocols there are a lot different and a lot less strict than they've been, uh, than they were in New York at the U S open, uh, where the players were really, you know, tracked They're only allowed to go to their hotel, uh, and to the site. They were tested multiple times, uh, uh, during the tournament, sort of unclear how often they're being tested in, in Paris. Maybe if I were there, I'd have more information. Karen Krause, who's an old friend of mine, is a great writer for the New York times actually wrote a big piece today in the New York times talking about the difference in the protocols. And she actually checked into the hotel that the players are staying at in Paris. It's sort of the the bubble hotel. Well, it turns out not only her, but other people are allowed to check into the hotel. Um, They're seemingly separated from the players. You know, if there's an area where they can eat and there's a restaurant, it's separated where the players can be in one area and um, the other people in another. But that's still a little dodgy to me. I mean, the players in New York were at one of two hotels, and the USTA essentially took over the entire hotel. 
and they set everything. They set it up almost like like it was a like part of the part of the site. So there were video games for the players. There were restaurants for them to eat at. They hired their own people to go in there and do all that. If they got into the elevator in the hotel, uh, the only people they saw were other tennis people, other players, and part of the player entourages, or maybe people that work for the association and so on. Uh, whereas in France, in Paris, it's uh, not quite as strict. So the players, I believe, I think they're on separate floors, um, but they could be getting into a hotel. Now, obviously, if you take all the precautions uh, that you have, meaning you wear a mask and your distance, it shouldn't really matter. Uh, don't get me started on uh, taking precautions and so on, because I did ask again on Twitter, um, you know, what you would like to discuss. And of course, as always, there's the people that don't talk about politics and uh, I'm not going to, but boy, it's getting more and more difficult. Okay. If, if you catch my drift. Uh, so I love Sinner's game. I think he's the kind of guy, you think he has a type of game that can bother Nadal if he's on uh, and, and, and doesn't get overwhelmed by the moment, which I don't think he will. Having a crowd, not having a crowd, there's a little bit of a crowd in Paris, so you have a little bit of a vibe, but it's nothing like what it normally would be. And clearly, that's helped some of the lower-ranked players uh, in the tournament, particularly on the women's side, where there's been a lot more upsets on the women's side, a lot more surprises on that side of the draw than there is on the men's side. Why is it making a bigger difference on the women's side than on the men's side? You know, I would say likely it's there's just generally speaking from a tennis level point of view, there is, is, there's, there's not as much separation at the very top of the women's game as there is you know, from someone who's 25 to 50 or even down the line. Whereas on the men's side, I think you've got a huge separation at the top, even at the top of somebody who's ranked 20, 25 in the world. I mean, I had a, was giving a lesson the other day to uh, someone at our tennis academy, our McEnroe Academy in New York, and a uh, good player, played college tennis, and he asked me, so what's really, you know, what's the difference between, it must be so mi minor, the difference between, you know, a, a, a really good high-level pro and the top player. I said, well, actually, there's a huge difference, okay? There's a monumental difference. Like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a great example because I wasn't a top top player, but for a while I was, you know, top 40, top 30 in the world, played Agassi. Agassi was an example I used because he was played a similar game to me, but so much better. So I was saying to my uh, gentleman I was giving a lesson to and playing with, it, it, there's no possible way that I could beat Agassi if he was on, like if he was into the match and he was concentrated. Now, there were certain players that I had a chance against that played a different style. Uh, so my point being is that there's a big, I think there's a bigger gap between the top players in the men's side and the rest of the field, okay? Now, obviously, you can always have the player that breaks through, that comes out of qualies and <clears throat> makes a run, but it's a lot rarer. Okay, for that time, whereas on the women's side, I feel like there's more of a possibility. Then you take away the pressure that comes with playing at Stad Roland Garros in front of a packed stadium, Arthur Ashe Stadium in New York, and you saw Jennifer Brady. Well, she, Jennifer Brady can be, is going to be, and it will be a top player. But, you know, she's a player that I think benefited at the U.S. Open from not having fans uh, because she hasn't been there that many times before. So when you look at Trevi Sant, you know, coming through the qualies, Italian player ranked, I think, 169 coming in. And she goes out there, and now she's in the quarterfinals. You know, sort of 
really coming out of nowhere in her mid-20s. Uh, she'll take on Sviatek. So I think somebody like that is benefiting quite a bit. Poda Roskova, who's the first South American player to make a deep run on the women's side for quite some time. She's also another player. Now, she plays Svitolina. So one of those four players is going to be in the French Open finals. Sviatek, Trevisan, Svitolina, Podoroska, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, obviously, Svitolina's got to be the solid favorite. Though I, I'm going to make the argument Sviatek will end up having a bigger career and probably win multiple majors. But maybe she's a little young. Letting Svitolina has been knocking on the door. Excellent player, moves well, looks to be in great shape. She was one of the top female players that did not come over and play the U.S. Open. So she uh, looks good, rested, ready. How will she handle the pressure of being the favorite now on that side of the draw to get through to that, uh, get through to that championship match? The other one that I'm really looking forward to tomorrow is between the current U.S. Open champ on the men's side, Dominic Team and Diego Schwartzman. Now, Schwartzman you know, is a heck of a player. I've been lucky enough uh, in the Labor Cup team, world te- the world te- uh, team for the Labor Cup team world, to have him on our team. And he's a great guy, uh, obviously a tremendous player, moves incredibly well. He's very small at 5'6". So for someone at his size to be the elite in men's tennis is basically almost unheard of at this point, that that's happening. You still see female players because a serve is not as crucial of a weapon in women's tennis generally as it is in men's tennis. So you see the Halops of the world um, that are not particularly tall, but that can be consistently be top players. Much harder on the men's side to do that. Schwartzman basically has no weapon at all in the serve. I mean, he basically uses a serve just to start the point. So he's going up against guys that are bigger, stronger, uh, he did beat Nadal, if you guys were paying attention at the Italian Open a couple weeks ago. Obviously, that was Rafa's first tournament. And Schwartzman, even when Nadal's dominated on clay, which he's done pretty much every year at the French, uh, last year, you know, he could, he could play Nadal really close for a set or two. I mean, and to do that at Roland Garros, you got to be really good just to even play him close for a set or two. Two is a, like a miracle. Three is almost impossible, which is why he's only lost two matches because the physicality and the shot making that it takes to uh, to 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 push him back, the relentlessness of Nadal's uh, hitting and his physicality is basically impossible. So, uh, Team is one of the guys that has the firepower to do it. Uh, he did it this year at the, at the Australian Open and beat Nadal in a physical battle, four hours. It was four sets. Uh, and it was an absolute war on the court as far as the, the, the physical nature of the match. And he was able, I'm not going to say outlast Nadal, because you know, Nadal was still relatively fresh for him at the end of the match. I mean, they were both tired, but they're both playing full bore. So team you know, went five against this talented young French guy, Gaston. That was maybe the most entertaining match thus far on the men's side as a team had a two-set lead. The Frenchman came back. At, I think he hit like 60 drop shots in the match. A lot of talent. He's a young guy. So the French have a, a player coming up that's looking really, really good. But, and so I'm a little worried about team having played a five-setter. Now he's got to come back and play Schwartzman, which I know that he's worried about this match because Schwartzman is, is in great shape has the ability to take the ball early, can move the ball around, 
Team is going in as a favorite. We saw when he went in as a heavy favorite in the U.S. Open. Finally, it was very tight early, and he was fi- able to find his way back into that final with a little help from Sasha Zverev in the championship match. I don't think he's going to get the same help from Schwartzman, meaning Schwartzman will be ready to win the match if it presents itself, but uh, he's going to have to play well. Team can overpower Schwartzman. Uh, he's got more firepower. He's got a bigger serve. His ball, his regular rally ball is bigger than Schwartzman's, but Schwartzman has the ability to take the ball earlier better. He can step inside the court. He can take the ball on the rise. He can step back. He can play the drop shot. Team likes to stay way back. So I think you'll see Schwartzman, particularly early in the match, try to use some short angles and some drop shots. Remember, it doesn't have to be a drop shot, a short ball. And that's where Schwartzman is very crafty because he can hit you. He can hit big shots from the middle of the court off both wings, but he can also play the, uh, the ball quite short as well. So looking forward to that uh, to that one, those, those matches in the uh, quarterfinals. We'll get to the other quarterfinals. I think we'll, we'll do that tomorrow. So we'll let these sort of simmer a little bit. Sinner. Simmer with Sinner. I'm uh, so pumped up to see how he can do against Nadal. What they should have been smarter. A lot of people want to hear from me about this, about Zverev. Uh, he was feeling very ill. He even said it in the press conference, then got annoyed. At, you know, God forbid the press should ask him about it. I mean, of course they're going to ask you about it. What do you expect? You know, you're coughing and you're saying you felt terrible. You shouldn't have been out on the court. Well, in the world that we're living in now, okay, I mean, I can't get into my tennis academy or my local, uh, you know, uh, go to the, the local restaurant and sit outside. You know, if you're not feeling well, you have a fever, what have you, go into an, an office building, get, get your hair cut. So you got to be a, a little more aware of what's going on if you're Sasha Zerve. And more importantly, the tournament, because it's really more up to the tournament to be on top of this kind of stuff. Um, now, look, if, I mean, I guess if, if he didn't mention anything about it and he just went about his business, he was at the hotel, maybe he told his team, well, maybe someone on his team should have said something. There's where I have team to you know, say, listen, this maybe isn't the right thing to do. Maybe we shouldn't. Now, maybe he just had a cold. Okay, so maybe, you know, I, I don't think he could have COVID because he had it before. Now, I had it before too. So, I mean, I don't know if I, do we know for sure that you can't get it again? No, I don't think so. I don't believe we know that 100% for sure. Otherwise, uh, why would I be walking around like I am all day in a mask and going to everywhere I'm going in a public setting with a mask? That's just what we do because we're not 100% sure. Okay, we're trying to be smart and respectful to the people around us. So if you're Zverev or part of his team, that would seem to me have been the respectful thing to do. Let the tournament know. Have the tournament doctor come and take a look at you. Come to the hotel. Uh, I'm not feeling well. Or when you get to the site, you know, the players get there four or five hours before their match, okay, to warm up, to eat, to prepare, all these things. So maybe you, you let somebody know. Um, based on the fact that we're living in the global pandemic and we're all, you know, we're, 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 we're very aware of what's going on in the world. So uh, that was, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit more follow-up from Sasha and his team about how exactly that went down. Um, but I guess sometimes, you know, it's a little unclear what people want to be truthful. Oh, don't get me started. I'm not, I said I'm not going to talk about politics. I'm not going to go there about when you test positive, when you knew you were positive, uh, did you get tested? How often you get tested? No, I will not go there, okay? But let me just rest assure you one thing, tennis fans out there. 
you really, really can't make this stuff up. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. Thank you.